Okay, so we are transitioning out of First uh, and Second Samuel and into First and Second Kings. So we're making quite a bit of progress here, um, and uh, and we're going we're going slow, but that's okay. Um, so in this study, we've we've you know obviously seen a lot of David's life, and today we're going to. Uh, we're going to see the end of David's life. Um, hopefully, if, if everything goes okay, we're going to make it to the end of David's life. And, um, and we're going to, you know, start walking through First Kings. First and Second Kings is a little bit different than, um, than the book of Samuel. And you know, you'll, you'll notice that we've picked up on David's story in first Samuel, right around chapter 15 or so, I don't remember the exact chapter, but I think it's right about chapter 15. And, um, we, we picked up David's chapter and that David's story. And that lasted all the way through second Samuel, the very end of second Samuel 24. So, uh, you know, a really long time that we've been looking at just David's story and all the interactions of David, you know, inaugurating this kingdom that, that, uh, he's sort of building as, as God's King. Well, First and Second Kings is going to be considerably different because not only is the style of the writing a little bit different, but also the the narrative itself is a little bit different. There's a few things that I want you to know just in terms of an introduction to First Kings that might be helpful for you to for you to to think through or understand. First, the Book of Kings is prophetic literature. Um, in that. It's not prophetic literature like Revelation or like Daniel or something like that, but it's prophetic literature in that it centers on Yahweh's prophets. So while it's called Kings, and it certainly is that, we're going to talk a lot about all the various kings of the kingdoms, starting with Solomon and and going on through uh, up to the exile. But it, it's there's really a large portion of it centers on Yahweh's prophets, and all and all of this is. The prophets coming to the kings, telling the kings something, and then the king's response to the word of the prophet is going to determine the rise and the fall of the dynasties and the kingdoms. And so on the surface, you're, you're going, well, this is just a, a, a narrative of king after king after king after king, but really uh, it's kind of also a story of prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. So you, we're going to see a large section of First Kings taken up with Elijah's story, Elijah's narrative. Then Elisha comes along. And then there's about 10 or so prophets that are going to be sprinkled in throughout this. that are going to be mentioned as giving warning to kings and, and things like that, as well as a lot of false prophets that are going to come in. And the kings are going to be their their merit is going to be shown to you based on how well they respond both to the prophet's call and to Yahweh's uh, own commands. Um, so that that's something to pay attention to as we go through First Kings is how they respond to the prophet. This is also going to be a really um, more ch challenging part of First and Second Kings is that we're really starting to get into Israel's history, which is going to start branching out really quickly, especially right after Solomon. Israel's story is going to branch out really fast because you're going to get 
not only prophets over here that are going to come speaking and preaching to kings, and so we got to keep track of them, but then we're also going to have to keep track of um, the kingdoms as they split. They're going to, there's going to be a king in the north and a king in the south. A king's going to be appointed in the north and a king's going to be appointed in the south. And there's sometimes where kings that reign at very similar times have the exact same name. And so it can get really, really confusing as we flip back and forth between kingdom and uh, between north and south and between the prophets that are going in. So it's uh, I'm going to do my best to kind of go through and be sure we have a lay of the land every time and and recenter ourselves. But um, but just know that it starts branching out really quick and the storylines get crazy. If you ever watched the show 24 back in the day, um, when it come on, you, you'll know like the first hour of the show is like, okay, I can handle this. And then by the, about the fifth hour, everything goes haywire and you're trying to track with 15 different storylines. And that's a little bit how first and second Kings does, but it gets kind of fun too at the same time. So, um, so there's that. So it's, but it's, but it's prophetic literature in one sense where it's looking at um, Yahweh's prophets and, and their proclamation to the kings. But then in another sense, it's also narrative literature. So it, it has a plot, it has plot twists, it has subplots, it has evil characters, it has, um, and that, that's not to say that they're not real, of course they are, but I'm just saying it has people that play a foil to other characters and things like that. And so it's important to pay attention to all the narrative movements that go throughout the story that I'll do my best if I can to point out along the way. Um, but it, it's it's a it's the plot the main plot of first and second kings is concerned with the attempt that israel makes or really often does doesn't make under the monarchy to live as the people of god how are they going to live as the people of god now that david well in a minute by the end of tonight david's going to be dead so how are they going to live as the people of god without david there on the throne in the promised land and and it's also concerning how God deals with the, the, with the Israelites in their success and in their failure. When they succeed, how does he bless their kingdom? And when they fail, how does he punish them, reprimand them, correct them? Um, and then this next one, I realized when it was too late that I gave you way too many blanks. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, actually. I, I, I'll come back to this slide if you don't get it all, uh, but it, it, there's some uh, contrasting points, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this slide, so hopefully you'll be able to, to write it all down, but there is some, uh, there's some contrasting points that we're going to pay attention to throughout First and Second Kings that's going to show this sort of prophetic narrative and this uh, literary narrative coming together. Um, and it, 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 there's these con- contra- contrasts that, that show up in the story that look at Israel's behavior. Um, one is a contrast between monotheism and idolatry and how Israel is, is really going to be put to the test with following idols versus Uh, pursuing the one true and living God. Then there's central worship. Solomon's going to come in and build a temple, the central, excuse me, the central to Jerusalem. Solomon's going to come in and build a temple. And uh, then they're, but they're going to be tempted in their idolatry to go after what's going to be called in first Kings as the high places. We might've encountered that term once or twice in first and second Samuel. We're going to encounter it a little bit more in first and second Kings. 
Um, high places are basically places of idol worship. Um, they're, they were built on a, a high place. They were built on a mountain. So they're called high places, but they're, they're, pagan, they're more or less pagan temples. And um, though I don't think exclusively they're, refer, they're always referred to, every time you see the word high places, it may not always be pagan, but, um, but it certainly will be mostly in First and Second Kings. But it, there's this idea of, of, of you know, are, are they going to pursue centralized worship in Jerusalem at the temple, or are they going to, you know, go after worship in the high places? Covenant loyalty versus spiritual rebellion. Remember, uh, there is... Uh, a fealty that they are to have toward the one true and living God. They're to follow after him. And part of what it means to be Abraham's children is to be circumcised of heart, meaning to believe God. That's what Abraham was told of us of Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And are they going to pursue the same kind of covenant loyalty as Abraham did? Or are they going to go into spiritual rebellion? Another thing they're going to be tested with is true prophecy versus lying spirits. There's going to be some prophets that come in that are false prophets that are telling kings whatever they want to hear versus true prophets, Elijah, Elisha, and others, uh, Micaiah, and a lot of others. Um, the Davidic covenant versus dynastic disintegration. That's a $5 word here. Davidic covenant being um, the, the God has promised to David that his, his, uh, his line would remain on the throne. We're going to see uh, how David understands that tonight, which has a little bit of modification to it, not just a, an endless promise that your, your son will stay on the line, but that it, it means that we have to obey him too. And as long as we obey him, someone will stay on, on, the, on the throne. Versus dynastic disintegration, which means the dynasty breaks apart. Um, so, what happens then when Israel falls into sin and they, they, they are no longer uh, loyal to the Lord and the dynasty is in, is in shambles and is going to break apart? What's going to happen then when they disobey and the Lord takes the throne from someone? And what does that say for the Davidic covenant? And how, 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 does, it, uh, how, how does it change the Davidic covenant? Is God not faithful to his word anymore? And so there's a lot of things like that that we're going to have to look at. And there's some very, when this thing gets to the very end in Second Kings, we see um, Jehoiakim, uh, that, that appendix at the very end of Second Kings is sort of mind-blowing when you start to connect this to Jesus in terms of how God keeps his promise and yet also punishes Israel at the same time. And then there's God's sovereignty versus human pride. Um, so you know, God has made this decree. We know this is going to happen. We've read the end of the book. We know how Jesus, that Jesus comes about. We know he's from the line of David. And so we know that. We know God is sovereign over it all. Then there's also human pride that comes along and, and sin. And how does, how does God, God deal with that and still keep his word and still be true to his promise and, and all of those kinds of things? It turns out, uh, well, this will be a shocker to no one. God's a lot smarter than anyone else's. And so seems like he can um, handle himself a little bit better. So as we go into the first two chapters of First, first, uh, first Kings, we're going to see um, that, that first, the first two chapters of First Kings form this really important bridge 
between the careers of two significant Old Testament kings. You've got David's story that began in in First uh, Samuel, like 15-ish, all the way through Second Samuel, and now comes to a close here in First Kings, while Solomon's story begins here, really begins here. Um, and these chapters are going to give us that transition of power between the father David and the son. And the transition we're going to see is far from smooth because Adonijah, who is Solomon's older brother, is going to attempt to take the throne for himself and succeed David and going to snatch the throne away from Solomon. And Adonijah is the, the fourth um, son of, of David. Um, the, other, the older three are dead. And so Adonijah is considering himself next in line. And so he's going to, he's going to try to snatch the throne away from David. And uh, Solomon is going to have to deal with him. And David's going to have to deal with this whole deal while he's also growing old. And, and so, so, you know, what is he going to do? But this is, it turns out, First Kings is, a, uh, is, a, is really, we think, we don't know who wrote First Kings. We don't know who wrote First and Second Kings. Really just one book called Kings. We don't really know who wrote it. Though very ancient tradition is that Jeremiah wrote it. Um, a lot of people will not say that now, and some people still stand on that. Most people would say, nah, probably not. Most likely, even if it was Jeremiah, let's say, that the, like many of the books in the Old Testament, the vast majority of the, of the storyline and the um, reports of the events were probably recorded by that ancient author, in this case may have been Jeremiah or perhaps somebody else. And then later there were, you know, some putting it, putting a little bit of it together, putting a little bit more skin on it before it became finalized. And so that's, that's likely what happened in a lot of cases of a lot of Old Testament books is the largest part of the story put together by, by a central figure. And then it finally edited and, and compiled all into one book um, later on. And so perhaps this was Jeremiah, but it probably was a different person than whoever wrote the Samuels. And because of writing style, because of a lot of different things, it's, it's most likely a different person. And so what we see in First Kings is like, you know, Second Samuel ends with David. Uh, he's, he's done. His kingdom's over. His, throne, his, his reign's over. He's dying. And this is sort of the end of his story. And then First Kings feels the need. Look, well, let me fill you in on how this happened, how it all came about that he died and how Solomon ended up taking over. And so I want to read um, now from First Kings. 1, 1 to 10. It says this, now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought a for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also very, a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. 
he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the high priest. Uh, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and, jo and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei and Ray, the and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, oxen and a fat and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, uh, uh, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Beniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. All right. Now there's certainly some a couple of weird things in there, but actually we're going to find out these things are are there on purpose, um, and some of them we won't find out till next week. You notice uh, it says at the very end of four, the woman, the young woman was beautiful, and she, uh, she was of service to the king, uh, and attended to him, but the king knew her not. And that sounds like uh, sort of just a weird line to kind of throw in there at the end, uh, you know, but. It, it, it actually is, is kind of important for what Adonijah is going to try to do uh, at the, at tomorrow, uh, next week. We'll see. And so uh, just kind of hang, hang on to that. Put that in your mind. But there's this question in chapter 1 and 2. Oh, wait. Let me, let me go back. Uh, where am I at? I think I – did I not include this here? Uh, chapters 1 and 2. Let me see here. Yeah, there it is. Chapters 1 and 2 provide the answer to the question – First asked in 2 Samuel uh, 9 to 20, namely, who will succeed David? David has built this really impressive um, kingdom, and he has, we, we've seen that he's expanded Israel's borders. Um, he has made it rich. He's fattened its treasures. Uh, Israel has, has, has had I mean, real, really, nationhood for the first time in, you know, forever, certainly not under Saul, where they like this. And now by the end of David's life, they are a, a legitimate nation now. I mean, really, they're, they're blowing and going and their borders are huge. They, they've conquered many enemies outside their territories. There's people paying tribute to them, which David puts in the coffers of Israel to build a temple. Um, so his treasures are his his um, his treasury is expansive. It's he's they're rich, and he also remember captured Jerusalem and he established it as its capital city. And so he turned this small city of the Jebusites. He kicked them out, made them serve him conquered the city of like maybe 2,000 people and turned it into, I mean, for the ancient world, a booming metropolis that's a political and religious focal point. So it's a capital city uh, and, a, and a real power point for the nation of Israel. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, despite all of this, there's still a lot of dissension amongst, amongst the people of Israel between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And so they're at, they're at in conflict with one another. So when David leaves the throne, 2 Samuel gives us the impression, uh, there's not a ton of peace in the land. It's not as though everybody's, you know, fine. Uh, there's still a lot of dissension amongst the people. And so Adonijah, we find out, is arrogant. And he declares that he's going to assume the throne. 
and we see the author, he gives us a few reasons why uh, Adonijah is such a, a jerk, to put it, to put it bluntly, um, why he's so arrogant. And the first is that he, he says in verse six, David never contradicted him. Um, uh, that, that means that David uh, never uh, spanked him. That, uh, I mean, essentially. It's um, the, the author of the text is, is basically like, Adon, he never disappoint, Adonijah was never disappointed by his father. Uh, so David always gave him what he wanted, uh, never uh, intervened, never disciplined him in any way. And so Adonijah is, you know, running around the land, kicking the sweet old ladies in the shins as a little tyrant, uh, you know, and never got his, never got, never got a, a spanking or never got uh, disciplined at all. Second was he was really handsome. And believe it or not, even back then, and this is true today, I think as well, good looks get you really far in life. Um, you know, and so he, you know, he's, he was very handsome. He's the king's son. He's very handsome. And not only that, he's the oldest living son. So he came, he came right after Absalom. Uh, there was a second son in there after Amnon that we see born, but we, we don't hear of afterwards. So, I mean, the best guess is that he died really young, probably in childhood, maybe uh, he died. And so it was Amnon. Amnon got killed by Absalom. Absalom got killed by David's men and then, um, and, 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 or by Joab. And then, uh, then there's, um, Adonijah. And so as it turns out, when you are not, when you have a favored status in the family, when you're not disciplined and when you have really good looks and your parents never tell, you no, uh, that doesn't make for really good character building. And, uh, certainly it, doesn't instill wisdom either as becomes evident the further we get into this story. Adonijah is not very bright. Um, he's, he, uh, he does, he makes some tremendous mistakes. We'll see next week, but um, he's not, he's not very bright. He's not very with it. And, but he just assumes that he's going to have control over the, the, the throne. And so, um, Nathan is ignored by Adonijah. Nathan is the prophet. Remember, Nathan has been around for a while. Nathan was there back when David uh, uh, stole Bathsheba. And so Nathan has been the prophet in the land for a, a good while. He is old, clearly very wise, has his sense about him, and he's a prophet of the Lord. And so this is going to be the first time we see a prophet go to the king here in just a second. But um, Nathan is ignored by Adonijah which tells us something really important. I'll get to that in just a second. But um, not only is Nathan ignored, but also Solomon is ignored. Um, and the general of the military is also uh, ignored, Benayim. And so um, they, they have to come up with a plan. And so Nathan goes to Bathsheba and uh, incorporates Solomon in this plan. But but goes to Bathsheba and knows that if they're going to develop this plan, then she's going to be key to it. And so he unfolds this plan to Bathsheba first. The first part of this plan is that Bathsheba is going to go in to David's chambers and remind David that he promised the throne to Solomon. 
Now, that's a promise that we didn't see in Scripture. It's not told to us in Scripture, but we've been talking about it for some time because way back in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, when uh, David has Solomon, you remember the first child with Bathsheba miscarries, and then they have Solomon, and the Lord, uh, the Lord names Solomon and gives Solomon a name. And, and we said back then, that's a key, that's a clue to us that, the Lord is selecting Solomon to be on the throne. And so the implication there is that then David, who knew that, uh, also selected Solomon. Well, here we may, he makes it evident, or the author makes it evident, that Bathsheba knows that there was a promise at some point that David made to her, or, or maybe even to Solomon, that he was going to sit on the throne. And so Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, look, here's the plan. You're going to go in first to David's chambers, and you're going to tell him, you're just going to remind him, remember, you made a promise to Solomon that he was going to sit on the throne. And then second, Nathan is going to walk in after that and going to, going to tell David the news that someone else is trying to sit on the throne. Hey, didn't you promise the throne to Solomon? So um, he's going to confirm what, what Bathsheba tells to David. Now, think about that for just a second. There, this is a, um, this is, uh, an example of being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Jesus uses that phrase for his disciples later on. What Nathan is doing is not manipulative and it's, it's not uh, sinful really in any way, but it is designed to present a, a powerful argument. How? Well, one, by overwhelming David with the negative news. The news is the same. Bathsheba's going to tell him the same thing Nathan's going to tell him. The news is the same. But you need to hear it from two different sources. When you, hear, when you start hearing things from multiple people, when you start hearing the same thing from multiple people, it feels like everybody's talking about this, doesn't it? <laughs> and so the, the, you can kind of sense the implication from Nathan as they go in is we're going we're gonna to overwhelm him with the negative news and give him the feeling that, yeah, everybody is concerned about this because everybody should be concerned about it whether they are or not. And then we're going to remind him, wait, wait a second. I, th I seem to recall you appointed somebody. Was it Adonai? I don't feel like it was Adonijah. I think it was Solomon, wasn't it? And so they're going to they're gonna present this to David so that he actually does something about it. It motivates him to action. And so they're going to they're gonna make this, this move. So I want to read this in 1 Kings um, chapter 1, 11 to 27, a little bit of longer section. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David, our Lord, does not know it? Now, therefore, come, let, us, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are speaking to the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king. 
although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the, high, the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant, he was not invited. He has not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his, with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king and his, his, with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the high priest, or the, the priest. And uh, behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Beniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. He, has this thing been uh, brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who would sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So um, they, they sort of put on this little bit of a pageantry here just to be sure that David gets the point of coming in and telling him. And Bathsheba really says um, four things to, to David that I think are of note and, and really important in the way she, she makes her arguments. First, she, she basically is kind of insinuating that he's lost touch with his kingdom, that Adonijah's done this, and my lord, the king, you don't know it, which is a problem. Well, David, we see, is like this old, fragile guy, and he's so fragile and so cold that he can't, you know, keep his bones warm, and, and somebody keeps turning down the air conditioner. Uh, those, those, those young ones keep turning down the air conditioner and he can't stand it, can't get enough blankets. And so he's snuggled up next to his nurse, essentially. And she comes in and she tells him, you don't even know what's going on in your own kingdom. And she discloses the identity of Eli of Adonijah and his supporters, which is really important. In verse 19, she says this, and then she claims that all Israel this, remember, this is going to be reiterated when Nathan comes in and says, hey, I, got, I heard just something. And he's like, oh, my goodness, how many people know about this and what do I need to do? And so he, she says, all Israel is waiting on you to choose as your uh, choose his successor. And um, and then she states that she and Solomon will be treated as criminals when David dies. Now, there was this question that we 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 sort of opened up. Uh, this would be many weeks ago, I think as far as how many people actually know that Solomon is next on the throne. That is not abundantly clear. Um, we, we're pretty sure Joab knows. We're, we know Nathan the prophet knows. We know that uh, obviously David knows. And now we hear that, uh, that Bathsheba knew, and perhaps even Solomon knew, we assume after that as well. But how many other people know? It's unclear whether Adonijah knows or not initially, but the fact that he does not invite Solomon to the banquet in his honor is a little bit of evidence that, um, that he does know that Solomon is next to reign. 
in all likelihood, and I said this many, many weeks ago, I don't expect anybody to remember this, but Solomon is probably very young when he takes the throne. Um, maybe 18, 19, 20, maybe. He's, he's probably very young when he takes the throne. And so in all likelihood, Adonijah, I mean, may even be, what, 20 years older than, than Solomon, maybe. Uh, it's certainly possible. And so um, you, you have Adonijah, who's a good bit older, uh, taking the throne from a young whippersnapper. You know, that's not unheard of. And so uh, she comes in and she, she's wanting to present this argument. And likely what it indicates by him not bringing Solomon to the banquet. You know, you know the other option would be he knows Solomon is going to be next to, in line or he's David's choice. But he's going to bring Solomon to the banquet to try to make peace here and just say, look, kid, I'm going to take the throne. So, you know, that's just how it's going to be. And we can make peace with one another and really try to strong arm him. But what, it, what she's saying to David is what it indicates that Solomon wasn't invited is that when he does take the throne and you're dead, he's going to run us off and, and kill both of us. And so she kind of puts it on David like, hey, we need, we need a decision here. We need something to happen. This also gives David the, the um, inclination to go ahead and put Solomon on the throne now. And so... David is going to respond to both Bathsheba and to, uh, to Nathan by swearing by the Lord that he's going to make Solomon the king. And so he's going to summon the men who, who can, he's going to grab all the men around him because David might be old and he might be fragile, but he hasn't, he doesn't seem to have lost anything uh, upstairs, that his mind is still pretty sharp and his political acumen is still pretty sharp because he realizes immediately what he's got to do and he's going to solve this problem. It, it appears that the Lord has given David a ton of wisdom. And so he summons all the men who can counter Adonijah's supporters. And Solomon is going to be placed on the king's own mule and he's going to ride into the city on the king's mule. He's going to ride into town on a donkey to demonstrate his status as king. It certainly does give some sort of uh, air uh, of familiarity towards it, doesn't it? Uh, king, king being anointed king, riding in on a donkey into the city. Um, uh, I think we see that in Palm Sunday, uh, if, you, if, you, if you weren't picking it up. But um, Zadok uh, and Nathan are going to anoint Solomon the king. Now, now who is Zadok? Zadok is the priest. Um, Nathan is the prophet. And so here's the king. They're going to basically unite prophet, priest, and king all right there together um, and, and, and anoint Solomon over uh, king over Israel. That's a powerful sign to whom? Who is that a powerful sign to? Well, Solomon already knows he's going to be king. It's not to David. It's not to even the, the people in Adonijah's camp or the supporters. It's to the rest of Israel. Because if Adonijah is there at a banquet, the king's oldest son, what would you think that the people of Israel are going to assume? Well, they're going to assume that David has appointed Adonijah as king. But when the prophet of the land and the priest of the land are there with a king uh, or uh, another king's son riding in on the king's mule and they're anointing him king, what are the people then going to assume? Adonijah is trying to take the throne, and Solomon is the rightful heir to the throne. 
so all the people are going to know who David is selecting as king. That's, that's the goal here. And so they're going to give divine and royal approval, essentially. The, 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 the prophet is going to anoint the king. And so he's going to be placed on David's throne. And most likely what this means is that he's going to be a co-regent to David in that last, the last, we don't know, days, years, I'm not sure, of, of, David's, of David's reign. He's going to be a co-regent. And so going to reign with David is all, all that means. So let's read that in 28 to 40. It says, then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. Uh, so she came to the, into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. Um, Benaiah is going to be the head of the military, so that's another powerful sign. So they, they came before uh, the king, and the king said to them, Take with your, you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. And you shall then come up after him. And he shall come and sit on my throne. And he shall be king in my place. And I, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, uh, may the, Lord the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So uh, how far are we going to 40? Is that what I said? I'm having trouble um, hearing you. I'm sorry. My watch is going off. So, so Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and the people said, long live King Solomon. And the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that all the earth was split by their noise. All right. So uh, the, a thing that you should notice about this is, which is, is the first time this has ever happened, Israel's never gotten a king this way before. Remember before it would be like, like with David, Samuel went and anointed David in secret. But, uh, but what is this? This is a king handing the throne off to his son. So David was identified before as, or Samuel identified David as God's chosen one. Um, and then both David and Saul had to prove themselves trustworthy in the eyes of the people and in order to rule all 12 tribes, which Saul really didn't do very well. And David, uh, David did. And, uh, and so they, they had to rule all, to, all, to all, rule all 12 tribes, but here Solomon is given a throne over all 12 tribes immediately. And all the people see the anointing right there in front of them. And what is this? This is affirmation of the beginning of the Davidic dynasty. 
David's son is taking the throne. It's as if God is already beginning to fulfill his promise to David that he made some, some chapters ago. And this royal lineage we're going to see is eventually going to produce the Christ. So God has already begun to keep his promise to David. Now, so they're finishing. So, so there's this loud uproar. Solomon is anointed king. And the, the author even says the, the earth split with the, the noise. It was so loud. And so uh, Solomon is anointed. The people are celebrating. It's, it's very loud. Now, who do you think is, is going to hear this uproar? Uh, none other than Adonijah. So obviously Adonijah, who's having this banquet, and they're celebrating, they're eating and drinking and being merry, and then all of a sudden they hear, the horns going off, and Solomon riding on the king's mule, and prophet, priest, king there being anointed, all there in the ceremony, and the people rejoicing, and the, earths are, the, the rocks are splitting because of the noise. And so they hear this uproar and a messenger is going to come to Adonijah to bring the bad news that every person that Adonijah snubbed has been honored by David and Solomon has been established and the people are, the people actually approve. So this little secret banquet that you're holding Adonijah to try to get all the support from the main men, it didn't work because Solomon undercut you and got all the people's support in the, in the meantime. And all of this was David's doing. So this was all his, his kind of uh, political acumen at work. And the people approve of it. And so this is going to be a great disappointment to Adonijah. Let's, let's read that in 41 to 53. Adonijah and all his guests who were with him heard, heard it uh, as they were feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the, high, the priest, came and, uh, uh, came and Adonijah said, come in, for you are worthy, a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan, Jonathan answered Adonijah, no, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent him, with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they had they had uh, had him ride on the king's mule, and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet had have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up uh, from there rejoicing. And so the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you've heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord the king uh, David, saying, "May your God." Uh, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make your throne greater than, uh, make his throne greater than your throne. And king, and the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Uh-oh, this is really bad news. Then all the guests, listen to this, then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each one <laughs> went his own way. They got out of there. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was, it, it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not, point, not, not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, 
Not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Okay, for now. Um, so uh, obviously this is really bad news for Adonijah. Uh, he sees that he's uh, God's chosen, that God has chosen him. Uh, he's God's chosen one. And so Adonijah is afraid for his own life and he goes and he uh, grabs hold of the altar. I don't know if I, if I skipped, did I skip a slide in there? Um, I don't think so. No, I think so. I think it's good. Okay. Um, so he's afraid for his own life and Adonijah goes and takes desperate measures. He goes and grabs the horns of the altar. Now, what is this that he's doing? Um, it, it's probably, um, there, there's a passage in Exodus where if someone has um, taken, has killed someone by cunning, they have sort of plotted and schemed, which is essentially what Adonijah has, has kind of done to Solomon, um, then they, you can seek retribution and kill them even if they grab hold of the horns of the altar. And so Adonijah is likely grabbing hold of the horns of the altar as a way of saying, you wouldn't you wouldn't kill me here at the altar, would you? You know, that, that kind of thing. It's sort of a, it's like a plea. Um, I didn't kill you and, you know, you wouldn't take me away from the altar and, and kill me, would you? And so Solomon's reign begins with this act of clemency where he actually grants to, um, to uh, Adonijah clemency and says, you know, I'm not going to do anything as long as Adonijah doesn't do anything prov provocative. But um, we're going to see next week that that's not going to suffice for Adonijah. He's going to, he's going to scheme and, and plot and do something really foolish. But uh, Solomon's reign begins with, with this act of clemency where he, he grants mercy to his enemy, which is, uh, which is, is just great. This is a good step forward for the kingdom of God. We're, we're, we're happy about this. This is a good, this is good news. Um, but then David, so we move into, into 1 Kings chapter 2, and this is right at the very end of David's life. Uh, David gives some parting words to Solomon to be obedient to God. And, and David even tells him that, that there's two vital uh, benefits to Solomon's obedience. First is that he will prosper. And second, that his obedience will ensure God's ongoing pleasure for David's family. Well, I thought David, I thought the promise to David was, you know, was a never ending promise that God was never going to renege on that promise. So why is it that, how is it that, um, that there's a, there's a, um, um, contingency to the Davidic covenant? It didn't seem like there was a Davidic, there was a contingency to the Davidic covenant back in second Samuel, right? Seemed like it was an everlasting covenant. David, you don't have to do anything. I'm just going to do this. David doesn't see it that way. He sees it as necessary obedience. In fact, what we're going to see by the end of this book, and I'll go ahead and tell you now because you'll forget by then, you know, is that, that um, in fact, they do disobey. Solomon does leave the Lord and does follow after idols. And you know what the Lord does? He does go around Solomon's son. In fact, he tells Solomon's son, look, it's not you. And hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around it. What God actually does in Jesus is he preserves the line 
to Jesus by going around Solomon's kids. And you see that in, um, in Mary's line. You see, that, so uh, we'll cover that as we, get, as we get later on, but you see that, that Jesus is actually sitting on the throne because he is in dynastic succession from Solomon's kids. True enough. But they're not on a throne anymore. There's no throne in Israel after Rehoboam. They, they leave and they, they go into exile and, and there's never a king really in Israel after that point anymore. And so what, what G, Jesus is actually born both of, he's adopted into Joseph's family and Joseph's of the Davidic dynasty that we're looking at here in First Kings. But Mary, who is blood relative to Jesus, is actually a different line going back to David. So God's actually worked around um, Solomon's kids because of their unfaithfulness and yet still kept his word to David. So we're going to see that much later on. God is, is very crafty uh, with the way he, the way he does things. Very he's smarter than anyone uh, on the planet. So there you go. Um, so D David's political advice, he, he then also gives him this uh, charge to eliminate Joab, uh, to kill Joab, because Joab has gone after um, uh, Adonijah and supported him in spite of the fact that he knows that Solomon's going to be next on the throne. And Joab has also, what David says, is killed two people innocently, and he remembers that. And Joab needs to die. But David's too old to do anything about it, so Solomon, you're going to have to kill him. David also says that he swore to uh, Shimei that he was going to protect him, and he was going to protect his family. And so don't do anything to him unless he does something bad, which we're going to see he actually does. And so what we're going to see is that um, he, he encourages Solomon to find a way to kill Shimei. Because, why? Because Shimei was the one that as David is walking out of town, he curses David and tells him that Saul was supposed to be on the throne. And so what this tells us is that anti-David sentiments are not going to be tolerated in the, in the kingdom. They're, they're not going to this is, and, and this is both and the, the, it seems like the biblical author is kind of helping us see that God's man is on the throne. He, God has chosen David. This is not merely a human choice, but it, it's God's sovereign choice. And you don't have a right to speak against it because speaking against David is speaking against God. Not that David is God, but it's speaking against God's choice in putting David on the throne. And so David is going is gonna, to uh, tell Solomon to do that. Um, I'll leave it for you to read uh, 1 Kings 2, 1 to 12. I want to just open for any questions that, that, are, that remain. Um, I've summarized the content of 2, 1 to 12. You can read it in your time after this. I had a quick question. I just uh, I missed this. Like two slides back. Okay. Uh, on the notes where uh, Solomon begins his reign with an act of clemency, promising Adonijah will not suffer retribution as long as he does what? Nothing provocative. Nothing provocative. All right, thanks. Mm -hmm. And so where's this shimmy guy? Uh, I mean, he'll, so show up, he'll show up next week. Huh? He'll show up next week. But I mean, like, where is he at right now? Because... He's not with Ad Adonijah. Ad 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 I can't get his no. name right. 
But he's not with him, right? Because he didn't, like in the first passage we read, he didn't go with him. No, he's not listed. Mm -mm. No, we don't know. We don't, as of this moment in the narrative, we don't know where he is. But, um, but uh, he, he'll show up next week and Solomon is going to basically be, Solomon's told by David, you know, you, you need to find a, find a, a, a way to, to knock him off and he will. And, um, and so Solomon's basically going to give him, put him under house arrest and basically tell him, if you leave house arrest, I'll, I'll kill you. And he's going to leave house arrest. So there you go. The okay, first four. Shimei or Joab? Shimei. Yeah. Joab's kind of, kind of, kind of under, uh, well, Joab's going to be chased down. So we'll, we'll, we'll cover the story next week, but um, Shimei's p- place under house arrest. So who, who told, who, who gave the advice to eliminate Joab? David. To Yes. He does that in 2, 1 to 12. Um, so he brings, he brings uh, Solomon close and basically tells him, um, in 10 to 12, he sleeps with his fathers. He dies. But in, um, in, right there in 5, 2, 5, and following, uh, he actually tells him um, in, uh, I guess it's 5 and 6, that Joab killed Abner, the son of Ner, in five, and Amasa, the son of Jether. And then, so he tells him in verse six, act therefore according to your wisdom, but don't let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So, <laughs> which is a very, a great way of putting it. And then uh, he, he actually throws in Barzillai, who fed him out in the wilderness. I don't know if you remember him. He took him food out in the wilderness. And so he tells him, you know, don't touch him, bring him into your table, feed him. He's a good guy. Uh, he took care of me, honor him. But then he moves on and he says uh, in verse eight, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, um, he cursed me when I was, you know, going out to Manayim. Um, He came to me in the Jordan and, and I said, I wouldn't put him to death by the sword. So, but I, I didn't say you wouldn't. So don't let his head go down, <laughs> don't go down to Sheol in peace. So, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of kind of debate around like what what is David doing here? And it, and I mean, it, it's it it's somewhat, you know, David is um, if if we haven't seen anything else up to this point, we know that David is zealous for the name of the Lord, and at the same time, David is not perfect, and so. I just, here's what you have to call, you have to be careful about when you read stuff like this. We're not really told, you know, the, the, the author doesn't necessarily sponsor this. Like he, he doesn't necessarily say, and that was a good thing or, and that was exactly what the Lord wanted. He doesn't give it. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they'll tell us and that's what the Lord wanted. And that was the Lord decreed and all that kind of stuff. And we know it was good, but you have to remember that the biblical authors are reporting what happened not necessarily that it was great, right? And so sometimes you don't really know. You, you kind of look at it and go, mm, maybe that was David being vindictive and maybe it was him going back on his word. He is a sinner like the rest of us, you know? Maybe, maybe that was a political acumen on his part and 
Shimei needed to face the sword um, to feel the justice of God, you know, maybe. I don't know that I can make a decision one way or the other, and I don't know that I really have to. I know that this is what the author tells me happened, and this is what actually is going to take place, you know. So I don't know that I necessarily have to make a decision there on to wh- as to whether or not David was in the right or wrong. It, it is what happened, you know. I just see it as David um, protecting his son. Yeah. I mean, you know, he didn't want these guys coming up and um, – stabbing him in the back, so to speak, you know, no doubt. With, David, with David not there anymore to protect him. No doubt. I mean, wouldn't you, if you're, if you're, you know, I mean, you're, you're handing it off and you're going, Hey, watch out for that guy. You need to kill Joab now. Cause that guy is ruthless. And we've seen that already. He's already killed one of David's sons, you know, and showed no remorse for it and didn't even own up to it. So, I mean, you know, you got to say at the end of this, whether right or wrong, there's some wisdom in what David is doing. You know, is it morally right or morally wrong? I'm not sure. Maybe David is going in. Remember, David couldn't build the temple because there was too much blood on his hands. And maybe David is going into the grave going, put more blood on my hands. That's fine. Because these guys need to die. And I don't want them to kill you. So, you know, possibly he's doing that too. I don't, I don't know. So, anyway. Well, I've kept you long enough. Let's pray and we'll we'll go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to read your word, talk about it, and to discuss what's going on in it. Um, We're grateful for it. We're also grateful that we see uh, you are faithful to your word in spite of faithlessness. And we will see that time and time again in the Old Testament, reminded of it over and over again. And uh, may we be reminded of that today, that in spite of our faithlessness, you are faithful because you have promised us um, so much in Christ and you have fulfilled it and you have brought it about in spite of the wickedness of mankind. You have brought it about because of the wickedness of mankind. And we are grateful because we are the beneficiaries of that. And we have so many promises yet hanging in the air, um, namely for Christ's return, for the kingdom to be consummated fully. And we anticipate your fulfillment of those promises because we know that you are true to your word. Um, Time after time, we've seen that in our own lives. We've seen that in in your word, bear that out, that you've always been faithful to your people and that we have no reason not to trust you. And so whether we're looking forward to Christ's return or perhaps we're struggling in the meantime, going through whatever it is that we're going through, the various trials and tribulations that go on in our lives, um, we can be assured that you are faithful to your word always, that we have no reason not to trust you. And so we pray that you would give us the heart of courage to continue to look to you and continue to trust you with everything that, that you have not only promised, but everything that you are to us in our lives. And um, that we would, we would find solace there, uh, waiting on you to act and continuing to find comfort in your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.